Welcome to the 28th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is 300 million to 800 million in just eight years. A conversation with UBS breakaway Gil Baumgarten. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. It's hard to ignore the increasing momentum toward independence. There isn't a wirehouse advisor I know who wouldn't want more freedom, flexibility, and control. While independence requires an advisor to be more long-term focused and give up much of the short-term economic gain inherent in a move from one major firm to another, the most entrepreneurial folks are the ones leading the charge. But one thing is almost always true. It takes advisors much more time to get comfortable with leaving the familiar nest behind and certainly all of the support and brand name that goes along with it to build their own firm. My guest on today's episode is no exception. In fact, it took him almost 10 years from the time he had his first meeting with Schwab to actually pull the trigger and open his doors as an independent. Gil Baumgarten is a 34-year veteran of the financial services industry who began his career at E.F. Hutton in the early 80s and then went on to become a top producer for Smith Barney and then UBS. And in 2010, Gill launched Segment Wealth Management, a fee-only RIA that today manages approximately $800 million for 150 clients. In an earlier conversation with Gill, he told me that over time, it became apparent to him that the big firms were more interested in profitability than in putting clients' interests first. And it was that incongruence that eventually gave him the courage to rip off the Band-Aid and plant the flag of independence. In this episode, we discuss why it took him 10 years to make that leap, how his business has grown extraordinarily in the past eight years. It actually more than doubled, and Gill is only a sole advisor with eight employees, how his take-home economics have more than quadrupled, how his clients and prospects responded to the news of his move, and much more as our conversation unfolds. Gil's story is a pretty interesting one, and he can certainly tell it better than I can. So let's jump right in. Gil, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Happy to be here. Let's jump in. Tell me a little bit about yourself and Segment Wealth. I've uh, been in the investment business for 34 years, uh, the first 25 of those years working for big brokerage firms like UBS and Smith Barney, and decided almost nine years ago that maybe a fiduciary business model would be a better place for me and my clients. You know, it's interesting you use the word a fiduciary model. A lot of wirehouse advisors believe or feel that they are fiduciaries because they always choose to put their clients first. So can you explain that a little, how it's different as an independent? Um, there are things that go on behind the scenes that most brokers don't know about. And those things uh, structurally inside the firm would pretty much preclude them from being a fiduciary. I'm sure that the majority of advisors do what they think is best for the clients at that moment in time, but they're generally set up in a business model 
that gets revenue and kickbacks and slices and dices the client relationship into lots of ways that creates a conflict for the structure itself, not necessarily for the advisor, him or herself. Okay. So I know you've had extraordinary growth as an independent since you left UBS. Can you tell us a little bit about it? How much you managed today? How much you managed when you left UBS and what the book looks like now? I'm a single advisor firm with seven support staff members. We have about $800 million in assets. And I had a partner when I was at UBS. We had a $409 million book on the day that I left. He retired at the same moment in time that I left and started my own firm. And I did that with his blessing. I told him a couple of days beforehand that I was going to be leaving and that he had a choice. I'd either leave his book behind if he changed his mind and decided he didn't want to retire or would he want them to be on my fiduciary platform? And he said, you know, help yourself take whoever you think would benefit from what you're doing and whoever you think would be compatible. And so I took about half of his assets and a little bit more than three fourths of my assets. So. And I, I would say that 300 million was kind of the core group that came from UBS. So that's extraordinary. You've more than doubled in the last eight years or so. And how about your revenue? I did 1.4 million in gross commissions my last year at UBS. I think I made about 660, something like that. My partner would have had something similar. So 2.8 million was what the whole book generated. But remember, I'm taking a fraction of that or some, you know, lopping off of that. I didn't invite all the clients to come. I didn't think they were compatible or we didn't get along for one reason or another. Some people are high maintenance or, you know, may balk at paying an annual fee as opposed to paying a commission. Others, you know, embraced the fee as opposed to the commission. So it's just different personalities or different fits. So the biggest difference has been the growth in the business on the very large asset side of the business. When I was at UBS, my book and my partner's book had only one client with more than $20 million worth of assets. And now we have 16 of those. And so the real growth, you know, on the, on the surface, it looks like, well, that's great. You know, a $300 million book goes to 800 million. It's been in the $20 million and up category is pretty much where all that money is coming from. Extraordinary. That's actually a fair question then. What is it about being independent that really triggered that growth or facilitated that growth? The majority of our clients are entrepreneurs to begin with. So they understand how a small firm can be very competitive. And as long as they have confidence that I have all my ducks in a row and that I'm not a thief who's going to figure out some way to swindle them. And, you know, majority of these clients I've had relationships with for a long time and I've been in the business for a long time. And, you know, there's all kinds of testimonials on the internet, not even, I don't want to use the word testimonial, but, you know, we've been recognized by Barron's and Forbes and Financial Times and the Houston Business Journal as, as being a, a leader in our field. And it, you know, we use those to our benefit to create credibility in the marketplace. So I don't really think that the big brands did anything for me. As a matter of fact, I woke up one day in 2008, 2009 and determined that those brands were actually creating quite a bit of harm for me. And those brands have yet to right themselves in many cases, look at what's happened at Wells Fargo. It's just, you know, it's problem after problem. So we haven't had those scandals at segment wealth management. 
And I think people recognize that. I don't. And when custody is at a big firm like Schwab or Fidelity, when you throw that out on the table, they they understand what you're doing and how it works for them. And when they look at the overall cost, on a cost basis, those big, big brokerage firms can't touch what we can do. You know, we can run accounts at 20 basis points. And and I'm still making money at that. The payout stopped a long time ago if you try to discount a client down to that level and do some type of a managed vehicle at a big brokerage firm. Yeah, no, that's extraordinary. Truly, congratulations to you. Thank you. So Thanks. you told me when we spoke before this that you had first met with Schwab in 1994 and were toying yeah. with the idea or intrigued by independence then. But you didn't actually make the leap to independence until 2010. So what took you so long and what finally gave you the courage to make the leap? Well, you know, I'm kind of an engineer at my core. So if I were to build a bridge, I would want it to be three times as big and strong as you really needed it. And so that's kind of the way I looked at the business in that I just never thought my book was big enough. So in 1994, I probably had 80 million in assets under management, and I probably could have cobbled together a decent firm. But over the years, remember back in 1994, the ability to account for client performance was in its infancy at that point in time. And so creating a back office, if you will, was very intimidating and I thought not robust enough. Add into that the fact that I didn't think that my business was robust enough to make a living at it. And I just waited till my book got bigger. And then when off-the-shelf technology got better and better and better, and then competitor after competitor, it got really robust. So from about 2000 to till now, it continues to get better. And what I was able to cobble together off the shelf, frankly, is equal to or better than what UBS was providing me on my desktop and not all that expensive. And when I did the math on how much of my payout I had to give up to use so little of what UBS had to offer, I just decided that I'd be better off hiring Schwab to let them handle the brokerage side of it, me pay all my own expenses and keep the remainder, and that my math dynamics would be far better. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. So, and you are right, by the way, we see the same thing. The cottage industry born to support the breakaway advisor has become much more robust and intense. The ecosystem, if you will, to support is far greater. And especially when it comes to technology. So you were right. You mentioned, though, that you had about 80 million under management in 94. What message were you right about the fact that at 80 million, it was just too small to go independent? And if so, what message would you give somebody listening who's only at 80 or 100 million today? Do you believe you need more than that to, to make a go of it? I don't. You know, I kind of think it would have something to do with age. If I were 50 years old, well, I started my firm in 2000 when I was 50. So I just turned 59. Back in 1994, and I'd have been 35 years old, I would have had a very long on-ramp. And I think also part of this $20 million and up clientele comes from my peer group that I know socially through church or whatever else. And so the older I've gotten, the bigger advantage I have. And I probably would have had some of that same advantage with my clients aging with me, if you will, and becoming more affluent in and of themselves. So I don't know how much of the additional $20 million accounts that we have now is directly related to the business model, but I would say that it's almost all of them. So the way I would look at it is the older I was, the more difficult it would be to start a firm with 80 or or $100 million. But 
my expenses were so low when I started this, I think I could have run it profitably, even if I had under $100 million, as long as I didn't have a lot of support staff and was willing to make do with maybe a single assistant, which is essentially how I started the business. I left with my assistant from UBS. Mm -hmm. Got it. When you finally made the leap, Gil, and decided to open Segment Wealth, were you 100% certain at the time that you wanted to become an RIA? Or had you considered other options like moving to another traditional firm? I was courted by other traditional firms, but frankly, they never had a chance. I was so convinced that this fiduciary business model would be far superior for a number of reasons, payout being one, control. I found myself at my prior firms running into situations that I just couldn't fix just simply because the firm had created roadblocks or that FINRA had some rule or that the firm had developed some rule. I just determined that the firms look out for profitability, number one. That means they won't engage in any activity that doesn't generate revenue and profits for the firm. The number two thing on their priority list is risk mitigation. If there's any risk whatsoever that the firm's reputation could get damaged or that some other broker in some other city far away could complain that I had done this or that or had said this or that, those were the two things that drove every decision at the firm. Well, what about number three? And that is doing the right thing for the client. If I take doing the right thing for the client and move that up to item number one, then all the other things fall into place. And that's what I felt like I needed to do was to develop a firm that focused solely on whatever was best for the client and let the chips fall where they may elsewhere. Okay. So t let's talk about those chips. What was your process for going independent? Like where did the capital come from, the expertise, the guidance, the operational support, the know-how? I had the capital saved uh, so I just used my own money. I started the firm with $100,000 in my business checking account, and I hired my first employee and paid her a bonus to leave and bought all my office equipment and had a website designed in the background before I ever left UBS. I had all my business cards and my letterhead, and I had already signed a lease, and I'd already paid the down payment on the lease. I had everything all set up, and I still had $32,000 in my checking account. So it cost me $68,000 to start the firm. And the first month that we were in business, I did, I think, around 30000 in revenue. I think I did 58000 my next month. And then I was at, you know, 75000 a month within 90 days. So, you know, I, we on-ramped to pretty much a million dollars worth of annualized production within the first four months, I would guess. So that's kind of what the transition looked like. I did decide to hire a transition firm. It was very intimidating to me to not really know all the ins and outs of the business and how the rules would be different from what I had spent the last 25 years coming to memorize. And so I was a little intimidated, actually quite intimidated by the possibility that I could just totally step on a snake that I just did not see, I couldn't understand it. And so I hired a transition firm to get me out of UBS, provide me with transition, no money, of course, but I was basically running the business through them with no contract. So I was essentially just hiring them on a month by month basis to help me process my business, to get my client contract signed and to learn how the software worked and, and the like. And then about 
three or four months into that, I had the head slap moment where I went, oh my gosh, this is not that complicated. <laughs> and once I learned how simple it was, then I essentially built a duplicate system to compete with that firm that I had hired to help me process my business. And when I was comfortable that all the components worked fine, that I just pulled out my scissors and snipped off all the lines to that other firm. Interesting. And were you scared? Were you worried that your clients wouldn't respond well to the idea? Well, that was one of the intimidating parts that had kept me thinking about it for the prior 16 years before I actually made the leap. But eventually I kind of reconciled all that. And and frankly, I was very traumatized by what had happened in 2008 and 2009. And I saw many risks in the business that weren't of my own making. And so I, I faulted my firm for creating much of the situation in 2008. And then when my $70 stock went to about six bucks and my $30 in the money stock options went to zero, I've suddenly recognized that the risks inside the business that had nothing to do with my own individual production were the ones that were vaporizing my stock options. Mm. So ultimately then, how did your clients respond? Like, can you share with us a picture of the words you used to explain your decision to leave a major firm, a familiar brand to them, and set up your own shop? I'm going to tell you a little vignette that lays everything out in the most unbelievable way. I have two sisters who, with their husbands, do business with me separately. I have known them both for a long time. I called the sisters up one at a time and said, hey, I've left UBS. I'm starting this new firm. It's a fiduciary business. I'm moving all your assets to Schwab, and this is how it works. And both of the sisters freaked out a little bit. They called the patriarch dad, who's like 80 years old, and described what it is that I was doing. And he says, oh, my gosh, don't do that. Why don't you move your UBS accounts to my UBS broker, and we'll just go on down the road. And the sisters say, no, we're going to give him a shot. So the two different husbands and two different sisters come in separately. I explain what it is that I'm doing and how it works for them. They both sign their paperwork and they both transfer. Six months goes by. The phone rings and it's the dad. And he says, hey, I've learned a little bit more about what it is that you're doing. I want to come in for an appointment. So the dad comes in with his 85-year-old wife and says, and I want to talk to you about opening an account. He opens an account and gives me a million dollars. He comes in six months later with the wife and the wife leans across the table to him and says, honey, don't tell him anything else. Just transfer the rest of the money. He reaches in his uh, little pouch and pulls out a $22 million statement from UBS. And I end up transferring that too. Wow. That's a great story. And do you think that's a story for a proxy for how most of your clients responded? I think so. So let me pivot for a second. How hard was it to learn to be a business owner? How much time do you spend today on non-revenue generating activity related to manage the business overall? Well, my role has uh, sort of transitioned over time because I was the chief cook and bottle washer when I started this. I had my assistant, Linda, who's done a great job to help me run the business over the years, but we've added other employees over time that I have gradually handed off responsibility to. So 
All of my payroll pretty much is handled without me ever even touching it. All my client billings, the money comes into the firm and I have a CFO who's responsible for all that. I don't ever touch the money. I don't ever you know, deal with any of that. I originally traded all the accounts and ran the discretionary side of the management of the business. And I've since hired a level one CFA and a level three CFA that I pay to take that responsibility off of me because in the end, these businesses are profitable, not because of what a great job you do managing the money. Yes, you do have to do an okay job managing the money, but that's the commodity. The hard part of the business is gaining the confidence of a client with money and unseating their existing advisor and getting that money in the door. Managing additional money is much more important than how you manage the existing money. And so being the rainmaker and bringing in the assets is the key to driving profitability in these businesses. Not so much that we outperform the S&P by one percentage point over the past five years or whatever it happens to be. The clients do business with us individually. They don't do business with our track record. And so you have to prove that you are competent. But a lot of that comes from just understanding the business and how it operates and having an ability to describe that to somebody and gain their confidence that way and then show them how much less they're going to pay for those services and how in the old business model at a brokerage firm, those services were padded in such a way that the clients pay a very large fee and I can compete with that dramatically on my new business model. Mm-hmm. So what are your goals for growth, Gil, in the long term? And do you foresee adding recruiting or M&A to be part of the plan? Um, yes, I had a hard time recruiting for the business. I thought that the world would beat a path to my door and that other advisors would call me up and say, oh, my gosh, I hear things are going great for you. Do you have a spot for me? And that just never really happened. And as a matter of fact, I would court other advisors and they just didn't seem to get it. Many of them would say things like, you know, what kind of deal can I get? Which just totally blows me away. What kind of deal can you get? I'm talking about equity ownership in a business that's far more profitable and far more valuable. As a matter of fact, I make more incrementally every year now than I would have made by being able to do a deal every year. And those deals have a nine-year life on them. So there's no deals in this. The the business itself is the deal and it is far more productive. But other advisors just didn't seem to get it. I think that maybe they place a lot of value on that brand and they've got this big mother Merrill taking care of them. You know, that's fine. I can understand that. I just feel like I kind of matured out of the need for that. So I haven't really had much success in recruiting. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, your experience doesn't surprise me because recruiting is hard. And while we watch what we think is this tremendous momentum toward independence, still we've got a long way to go in really educating the masses. And most of the advisor population is still steeped in the notion of just what you said, what kind of deal can I get? And I think little by little, and one advisor or one team at a time, we're watching more of them being indoctrinated in the notion of equity in a growing profitable entity can in fact be worth a lot more than a deal up front. But the reality is it requires an advisor to think long-term instead of focus on the short-term. And I'm not sure we're quite there yet. So I would tell you to keep at it and you will be successful at some point. You know, that brings up another point, And that is that 
I did consider, and this was sort of back to one of your questions earlier about the business model that I chose, I did look at doing a blended RIA model. And one of the things about a deal or giving up your Series 7 or giving up your commission, a lot of guys get hung up or gals get hung up on, oh, I've got all these 12B1 trails and a 12B1 is considered a commission. Yes, I'm not allowed to earn a commission and I did have to walk away from my 12B1s. And yes, I was probably doing $200,000 a year in gross commissions on 12B1 trails from mutual funds and annuities and the like. And yes, I had to walk away from that. But I ultimately converted that to fee generating revenue. It took me a couple of years. But what you have to give up in the licensing to maintain your Series 7 is so extreme. The RIA model is so much simpler. And the rules of being RIA registered are so much smaller and less onerous that giving up the 12B1s and ultimately converting them to another form of revenue that I can get paid on as an RIA leads me to believe that I made the right decision, at least for me, about giving up my Series 7 and walking away cold turkey from the brokerage business. And I think that cold turkey nature of it is what is very intimidating for most people. They've spent all this time, you know, getting their clients all lined up in the commission mindset. And then to suddenly switch that to a fiduciary fee-only platform is a very stark jump into the cold water, if you will. You're 100% right about that. And in our experience, most advisors going independent start out in the shallow end. They become a hybrid firm, meaning they're able to do commission-based and RIA business in the same platform. And over time, many of them, probably the majority of them, migrate more to the RIA platform and eventually give up the Series 7 license. I thought about doing it that way. It would have been less intimidating for me. And frankly, I probably would have done it sooner if I had gone that route. But once I had decided my book was big enough and that I didn't need the brokerage firm, going the straight RIA was really the best choice for me because I would have had to have done a second transition, if you will. Well, that's the beauty of being independent is you're the owner and you get to decide. So when we talk about freedom and flexibility and control, there it is right there. Um, the other thing I want to say is that a lot of firms that have a goal of recruiting or doing M&A, playing in inorganic growth, really focusing on it, oftentimes it's very hard to do that as a standalone firm. And it's the ones that are backed by either private equity firms or strategic acquirers or firms like Focus Financial or Dynasty Financial Partners or the like that really begin to have success in the recruiting and M&A front. And certainly that's not for everyone, but when those factors become important, it's much easier to do it with a scaled player and people that are knowledgeable deal makers behind you. Yeah, I believe it. So let me shift for a second. As the sole owner of Segment Wealth, do you think much about your succession plan? What do you imagine your end game will look like? You know, I thought originally that my end game would be to bring in a 35 or 40 year old advisor who totally understood what it was I was doing. And maybe he felt that he just didn't have enough critical mass to do it on his own, and that I would ultimately sell the equity to that advisor. But compatibility in the business is so hard to achieve, and I've just never really met that advisor that I think could do that. And so ultimately, I'm guessing that I would take in private equity money and sell the firm over a period of time and let it get blended in with another firm that was similarly focused to my business model 
although I wouldn't rule out hiring a junior advisor and transitioning the business to him over time, his inability to pay for that business, because that's another issue is that these businesses are a lot more valuable than a brokerage business, maybe five to one kind of more valuable. So a transitioning out broker arrangement is tough to get, you know, much past about one times revenue. And these firms trade it, you know, a smaller firm than mine might trade it three times revenue, a firm my size more like five times, and then a firm in the $2 billion range might trade it six or seven times. So think about the amount of equity that we're talking about there versus a transitioning broker package. And so that's a good segue to my next question. How do you expect the value of your business, the market value of Segment Wealth to compare to that of a retiring broker or retiring a Sunset Advisor program at a wirehouse? Had you retired from UBS and gone into UBS's Alpha program, for example? Well, you know, that it may have changed over the past eight or nine years that I've been gone, but my recollection of what that looked like from, you know, 2010 when I left, let's assume for a second that the, that the revenue from my combined book, let's just say that I stayed at UBS, my former partner retired, and he was doing a million four, so was I. So I had a $2.8 million book. Let's say that I grew that to 3 million over the past few years, because frankly, that's about how my business was growing at the time. So the, the move to the RIA was a catalyst for a very large growth spurt that I don't think I would have experienced at UBS. Essentially, my business at that point in time would be worth about $3 million. And I'd probably get paid over a two or three year time period, assuming that I didn't compete with the business or the firm or say the wrong thing or, you know, whatever. So maybe business would be worth $3 million. So now here I am with $3.6 million worth of revenue, you know, put a five multiple on that. And you're talking about somewhere between 18 and $20 million is what the value of a business like this would be. So it's, not anywhere near the same. On top of that, the revenue that I would have received from UBS in a retiring brokerage package would have been considered ordinary income and the sale of the equity of my business would be considered capital gain with a zero cost basis. So therefore, the, the tax bracket would be essentially half on selling this business versus the retiring brokerage package, which would get much harder hit on taxes on a much smaller number. Yeah. So going back to the advisor that starts out with what kind of deal am I going to get, therein is the power of the equity in a growing profitable business. Correct. Okay. So one final question. With the benefit of now eight years of hindsight and a tremendous amount of growth that you should be incredibly proud of, what advice would you give prospective breakaways? That is advisors who are still working for traditional brokerage firms as employees who might have interest in becoming business owners. Well, I would say that if an advisor is merely frustrated by working for a brokerage firm, but doesn't want the risk and the hassle they should just stay right where they are. But there's a lot of people out there that are willing to do something about that. And I would say that I waited too long. I should have done this when I was 40, not when I was 50. Yes, technology changed that facilitated a lot of my business, but that technology is already good today. And so therefore, the height of the mountain that one has to climb is not as high today as it would have been eight years ago when I started my firm or 20 years ago when I first thought about it. So I would say 
do it because my clients have responded very favorably to it. And I just like my situation much better. My wife tells me that she thinks she's married a new man. Uh, I come home in the afternoons and I'm not frustrated by some new rule or the way that the firm is changing this or making me jump through this hoop or that hoop. Hey, I create my own hoops. It's just a much better business for me. Well, all the growth is fabulous, but the truth is being able to work in a business that where you're making more money and it feels more soulful to you and you're happier is seems to me the best reason of all. And everything else is just sort of noise behind it. I agree. I want to thank you so much, Gil, for joining us. This was incredibly productive and instructive. And I imagine a lot of people will really resonate with your message. Well, great. Good luck to them and you as well. Thank you. No doubt that taking the leap to independence for Gil has paid off handsomely and certainly delivered on the freedom to serve his clients as he saw best, as well as giving him the ability to grow from $1.4 million in annual revenue to more than $3.6 million in just eight years, something he felt he could never do in the brokerage space. As Gil said, the people most suited for independence are those who aren't asking, what kind of deal can I get? But instead saying, tell me about building equity in a growing and profitable business. And for Gil, he built a business that in eight years went from having a value of $3 million under the UBS umbrella to a business worth more than $18 million as of today. In our next episode, I'll be speaking with industry leader who in 2017 was named the most influential person in financial services in an investment advisor survey. And he is influential indeed. Mark Tabersian, CEO of Pershing Advisor Solutions, will be my very special guest. There's no doubt in my mind that this will be a great informative episode, so please be sure to tune in. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. I thank you for listening, and I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.